everybody. Welcome back to The Smattering, where we like to answer the hard questions about investing. I'm Jason Hall. Got the voice of the people here with me, Jeff Santoro. Hi, Jeff. How's it going, buddy? Hey, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm excited about today's guest. This is going to be a good one. Yeah, we've got another guest with us today, Nicholas Rosalillo. Some of you may know Nick through shared work with me and Jeff over at The Motley Fool. We're going to talk about Nick's other project that I think is amazing, something I've done a little work with him on. He asked me to come on Chip Stock Investing. It's on YouTube. He's got a great channel there. It's really active on Twitter. We'll talk a little bit about that. And we're going to talk about today with Nick, Chip Stocks Investing and Life with Nick Rosalillo, or as I prefer to subtitle this show, NVIDIA, NVIDIA, and also NVIDIA. How's it going, Nick? <laughs> Hey guys, thanks for letting me finally weasel my way onto your show. I'm, I'm super excited. I feel, I feel special. Well, you should know, Nick, that even though this is your first live appearance, we we did post the 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 interview that you did with Jason on your channel, and it's still to this day our fourth most popular podcast ever. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you are you are already well known to the smattering audience. So we're happy to have you here live. Oh, very cool. Yeah, it's was, it's great. That was fun. That was a fun one. I liked that one. It was. It was. And and Nick, it's one of those things where and and I, in all honesty, here I'm not I'm not just saying this because it sounds good, but you're you're definitely somebody we wanted to have on and want to have on, and we'll probably have on on a fairly regular basis because you have great insights beyond just semiconductors. Well, let's um, see how this goes first, Jason. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I agree with Jeff on that. Careful. <laughs> fair enough. So let's let's do this. Let's let's talk about you, Nick. Give for folks that don't know you or don't follow you, haven't spent any time on your on your YouTube channel. What's your investor origin story? And what grew you to your your current focus of of the chip industry? Yeah, I'll I'll keep this brief. You know, no one's ever asked me this, actually. So I had do to you, give Do this you know the while. answer? Do you do you know? <laughs> well, I know the answer, but I had to think about how to do it succinctly. So I started investing in an individual stocks almost straight out of high school and not because my parents taught me about it. In fact, I'm mostly self-taught, but it just kind of sort of happened by accident because I, I worked in high school. I was a weird kid. I worked, I worked nights and weekends. That's kind of just what I did. I, I saved up my money my senior year so I could build my own PC and I got an NVIDIA, NVIDIA GeForce 4 because this was like 04, 05. So I saved up my money for that. I built my own electric guitar. So like, I like building stuff, electronic stuff. But like, I had this money and I turned 18 and I randomly went and bought a CD at the bank for like 5% interest or something silly and told my mom and she was like, oh, I have a friend that does stocks, something about stocks. Like she didn't know what it was, but, but yeah, anyways, I went and talked with this lady and she was like, why is an 18 year old asking me about investing? So anyways, that's, that's kind of how I got started investing. And I eventually worked for that brokerage firm for a number of years, started my own investment company that, that I still manage money for today. So that's my investing journey. And that's also how I got interested in chip stocks. Cause I, they said I built my own PC in high school and an electric guitar. And so electronics have always kind of intrigued me. Well, two, 2004 would have actually been a pretty great time to be looking at technology stocks because we're coming off the dot-com boom, really 2002, 2003 was kind of the bottom. 
2004, you're still like, you happened to pick up some Amazon or NVIDIA back in those days. Was NVIDIA public back then? I guess it was public. Mm-hmm. Back then, yeah, it been public for a while. Public in 99. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. if I was, if I was a smart kid, I said I, I worked in high school, but I didn't say I was like a smart kid. I would have like bought, you know, the company I saved my money up for to, to buy an expensive high-end video game graphics card for, I'd, I'd like buy that stock. But no, I bought this company called On Semi, which I think is pretty, pretty popular today. Yes. Yes. Because it had been semi recently spun off from Motorola. Right. And at the time, you know, like when you get sometimes new investors, you get started and you're like, you want to buy small companies because those have the most growth opportunity. And, you know, that's, that's what I started buying. So I bought. So on semiconductor was your first, that was your first stock. It was one of my first. Yeah. Do you remember your actual first? I think it was like a shipping company. (laughs) uh, I'm guessing that did not go so well. No, it didn't. No. Yeah. I learned, I'm, I'm, I learned through a lot of bad early experiences. Yeah. That's the best time to pay that tuition on a bad investments when the money's not so much, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, pick the pick the wrong stock when you're 18, not when you're 38 or 48. That's the right time to do it. So I'm curious, Nick. Like it. So it sounds like as you got more into investing, it made sense for you to sort of gravitate towards chip stocks and maybe technology stocks generally because that was where your interests lie before then. But you really sort of dug into the chip industry in the last couple of years. You know, as you've as you developed your YouTube channel, and I know you write a lot about it. So from an investing standpoint, like what is it that draws you to that industry to the point where you'd want to build your whole, you know, YouTube channel around it? Mm-hmm. I would say it's a threefold reason why we did the YouTube channel based around chip stocks, the, the timing of it. You know, here we are at May, May 31st and NVIDIA is a household name, but I would say even as late as like last year, still not that popular of a stock. Like if you just stop someone randomly on the street, you might have a pretty decent shot of finding some people that didn't know what NVIDIA was. I would, I would hazard to guess, Nick, I would hazard to guess now, if you were to go ask the average person on the street, what NVIDIA is, and if they didn't already know, they would say it's an AI company. They wouldn't, they wouldn't say it's a semiconductor company. They'd say something, something artificial intelligence. That's true. That is probably absolutely what would happen. You're right. <laughs> Base, so, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, we started it because it was a timing thing. We, we thought, you know, in the midst of a of a pretty horrendous downturn for the chip industry in late 2022, that was the first reason we decided to build a YouTube channel around it because we feel like semiconductors are really, really not understood at all. I think even in the software community, you know, like, you know, software, the stuff that's built on top of semiconductors, I don't think a lot of even ACE software devs even really know, they know how to code, but they don't necessarily know how the semiconductor industry works. So is the second reason, because we're a believer in, in business ownership, not stock ownership. And then the third reason I think really probably actually answers your question, Jeff, and then I'll shut up is I love, I love chip stocks because I don't believe there are all that many defensible moats in technology. I believe that to my core and I have for a long time, but the semiconductor industry is special in that regard because it's patentable. 
you can throw patents on semiconductors. Software, you can patent, but it's very rare. It's very difficult, even though there have been some landmark court cases in recent decades. It's hard to patent software. Software is also, you know, it's scalable, but it's easy to enter. It's a low, low barrier to entry. So if you have a great idea, you're going to get competition really quick. Semiconductors, that's not the case. You can't just wake up one morning and decide, you know what, I'm going to design a semiconductor. It costs hundreds of millions of dollars to develop a semiconductor that's going to work. And then if you end up with a design that's going to work, you still have to come up with another few hundred million dollars to go out and manufacture them and then hope someone is going to purchase enough of them that you can turn a profit on it. So if you're looking for technology businesses where there's an actual defensible moat, I know a lot of investors like that. I think the semiconductor industry is a prime place to find an actual real business that can play defense or, or even better, not have to worry much about competition for long stretches of time. Well, it's, it's nice to be able to play defense when there's a good chance to go on offense too, right? And I think that's another part of the opportunity right now that this industry is still growing, considering how large it is, the, what's the total revenues seven, $800 billion a year. We're looking at a trillion dollar industry in less, probably five years or less based on the current trends, but it is cyclical. Like you said, I think this is an important, and you kind of hit on some of these things already, but I want to do kind of a, a little bit of a, like a chip industry one one where we, we do break it down a little bit as I think this is maybe a good teaser for people to while they're going to want to go over to chip stock investing to really get into the the weeds, so to speak, and really learn the the real like the 102 and the more advanced stuff they can come spend some time on your channel but let's let's cut the chip industry up into pieces and i'm gonna i'm gonna start and kind of lay the like the overarching theme so again it's it's an industrial industry as much as a technology industry right you have the foundries the companies that make the chips you have the the companies the nvidia's the apples of the world that design the chips arm holdings that some of the intellectual property that's used to design the chips you have the picks and shovels companies that make the equipment and the software that's used to design and to manufacture the chips. So you have all these different parts to it, like you're, you know, and, and but, but then it's also really, really cyclical because it's an industrial consumer economic driven market. Fill in the blanks on all of those different pieces for us. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you guys, you guys know this. I think a lot of investors inherently know the cyclicality of it, but you're absolutely right. It's because it's, it's an industrial business. It's manufacturing. It's ridiculously advanced manufacturing. And so, yeah, you have, essentially you have your engineers, the people that design stuff, and then you have the people that manufacture the stuff that the engineers design. And then you've got all the, the pieces that, that fill in the blank. Of course, you have to have the equipment. Somebody's got to make the equipment. We are talking about, I would say not, maybe arguably the most advanced things humankind has ever created in semiconductors. So you, you can't just like get any old piece of equipment to manufacture a chip. You need suppliers that have a deep understanding of chemistry, of physics, uh, that can make the machinery that makes the chips to supply the fabs. Those are like the picks and shovels. And then it's a virtuous cycle, like any manufacturing industry is. 
you use the leading edge, the most leading edge final product to fuel the virtuous cycle to design the next generation of most advanced chips. So basically, you know, chips kind of flow into the, the software space. They power software and services, and then you use some of that software and, and service and advanced chips to go back and enhance and further make, make further advancements to the next generation of chips. Let's take you know, kind of like this big cycle, big circle. Let's take Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC. Something well, you, you and I've talked about this one a lot. And you know, this is one of a handful of most important companies in the world, right? David Gardner's snap test. You snap your fingers and TSMC has gone and the world kind of grinds to a halt, right? Because whether it's the most advanced semiconductors that they make nine out of 10 of the most advanced or maybe 95 out of 100 at this point, but then also all the stuff down the value chain below that, you talk about that cycle because today's best semiconductor is made on a machine that's still going to be in use at TSMC or, Saiwan or, or Samsung or some of the other handfuls for five years, 10, maybe even 10 years. Right? It's still generating something of economic value. It's just not the fastest in the world. But thinking about Taiwan Semiconductor, again, as a manufacturer, the cycles and the ups and downs, what is the... What, what are, thinking about economic modes you talk about, what, what are its competitive advantages? The biggest competitive advantage is if you want to compete with TSMC, even just a little bit, you have to spend tens of billions of dollars at this point. Barriers to entry. Talk about a barrier to entry. Software companies don't have that. Right. It, it just... You just don't. That's why we had like the flood of, of software startups and IPOs over the last over the last decade leading up to 2021, 2022. You can't do that with a TSMC. The barrier to entries are ridiculously high. And, and, and because of those barriers to entry, you also get cost advantages, right? Because they've already deployed the capital. They can manufacture more cheaply than, than others. And then there's a network effect benefit too, right? Because they built their business that we're not going to compete with you. You, you bring your chip designs to us. We're going to manufacture them for you. Your competitor brings their chips designs to us. We're going to manufacture for them too. And the more chip designers that bring things to them, the more it benefits everybody because it drives down total cost and makes more efficient. So you get network effect benefits, which you don't always think about from a manufacturer. You think about that from like Visa or Facebook, but not a manufacturer, but it's there. And arguably you could say maybe they have some pricing power too, particularly in the, like in the, depending on where things are in the cycle, right? They can, they can show some pricing power as well. And that's Absolutely. really rare. That's really rare for a business to have that many competitive advantages. Now let's, let's move away from the, so that, again, that's TSMC. Again, mentioned Samsung too. Then you've got Intel. You mentioned OnSemi. I think, don't they manufacture yeah, their own, they're, they're like their specialized stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. There, there's quite a few of these. They're called IDMs, Integrated Device Manufacturer. Intel is, is an IDM. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of them, like on semi, that that specifically focus on industrial applications. Yep. So that's where you're going to find like 
you know, your picks and shovels play on electric vehicles, uh, mm -hmm. which I absolutely love. Not an investor here on automakers or EV startups, but I will gobble up chip manufacturers that provide the components for that stuff. They're massively profitable and yeah, you're not going to see any IDM startups, not many anyways, that are viable for a very long time. Texas Instruments, they're more of a vertically integrated, but it's kind of the same idea here, right? And again, it's, you know, Tyler Crow and I, we do a lot of the videos on our YouTube channel. He and I have talked about, it. it's like the automotive industry, like the automakers, take Tesla out of the picture. It's the one exception. There's no other auto automaker that's been a great long-term investment, zero. But if you look in like all the suppliers, there have been tons and tons and tons. And these IDMs are becoming as EVs and not even just EVs, but like just a modern car has dozens or hundreds of semiconductors that are in them, right? So some of these specialized ones like you're talking about, go to Nick's channel. You can learn more about those because he talks about some of those there. I think that's really interesting. Let's, let's move over to the NVIDIAs of the world, the Apples, others that they're also chip makers, but they're chip designers. They don't actually manufacture. They're the ones that go to these, these big foundries and use them. So like NVIDIA, Apple, Apple has been doing this for a long time. Uh, this is like, this is like the sexy, the, like the beauty pageant part of the chip industry, because this is where you find everyone's favorite semiconductor names, or as I like to say, everyone's favorite semiconductor stock charts. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> videos. Maybe we'll talk about that later. It might come up. It might come up. Like everyone knows the stock, but not necessarily the business. So yeah, NVIDIA, AMD is, is fabulous because they, they got rid of global foundries. That was their formerly their manufacturing arm that they spun off back after the financial crisis. Yeah. The, the beauty of these is because they don't manufacture themselves, they're kind of an asset light business. Basically, these are like some of the world's largest engineering firms. That's all they do. Basically, it's like thousands of electrical engineers and, and physicists and chemists, absolutely brilliant people designing chips, pouring all of their efforts into designing ever more powerful and more energy efficient chips. And they're really good at it. And that's the barrier to entry there. You can't compete with that kind of pool of talent. Um, Particularly when they're already sitting on lots of IP and it's IP that they're leveraging and building on top of. So that yeah. institutional capital that they've already created. Yeah. And again, so, it's, 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 it can be patented. There's like actual legal protection for the stuff, which is, which is brilliant. If you're an investor, where would you put a company like ASML in this, like, as we're bucketing the semiconductor companies, right? We have the, the foundries, the fabulous, the IDMs, the, where would, where does ASM, are they their own little Island because they have such an important part in this conductor, semiconductor supply chain, or do you think of them as part of one of these buckets? Nick, this is my favorite part of the value chain. Spend as much time as you want talking about these guys. Let's do it because it gets so little attention with the exception of ASML. I think more investors have become aware of who ASML is in recent years. ASML, contrary to belief, though, is not an island. So ASML is a chip fab equipment company. So again, you mentioned picks and shovels earlier. And these are like, if you think of the whole semiconductor industry as a picks and shovels play, these guys are like the picks and shovels 
for the picks and shovels. They manufacture the equipment that fabs like TSMC or Intel or Samsung need to actually manufacture the chips. And so ASML Extreme, they, they have a, a monopoly on a very specific type of machine called Extreme Ultraviolet Lithography. They're the only ones currently that can do it. And these things cost close to 200 million bucks a pop for one machine. Just so your listeners kind of like get a sense for how ridiculously complicated and- And they're valuable. huge, right? They're, they're like the size of a shipping container. Massive. I think it, yeah. I think it takes multiple shipping containers and then they have to assemble it on site after they build the, the thing, they have to like piece it together on site. And then you have like ASML employee in your fab for the lifetime of the piece of equipment, right? Because it's that com complicated to operate. That's one of the really impressive things to me about a business like ASML and their model is because, because they are the, the, you know, they make the picks and shovels for the company that makes the picks and shovels. Like you said, there's the potential for their business to be like on paper, you would think that it could be like even some of the most cyclical of all of them. And in the, in the past, that has been the case. It's been a little more resistant to that because basically it's at max manufacturing capacity and its order book keeps getting filled up. I mean, they've got a couple of years worth of revenue lined up. If they didn't have another customer order a single machine, it's really impressive. But because the, the their machines are so high touch, you know, these are Lamborghinis, you know, these are not Volvo diesels. The fact that ASML has so much services revenue that comes as well in, and it's also really high margin revenue, even considering that I think they might have the highest gross margin of, of any hardware manufacturer on earth. I don't know if that's exactly true, but it's directionally accurate. They get really good services revenue as well that is consistent and steady across the cycle. It just makes it such a compelling business. Nick, so, I think the, the reason people know about ASML is because of politics, not because of its actual business, right? It's a Dutch company. It was, I think, spun out of Philips back in the 90s. And all of the, 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 the restrictions around the China having access to the highest end semiconductors affected ASML. And that's really unfortunate that so many people know about it because of the restrictions on specifically those EUV machines. They also have DUV, deep ultraviolet lithography equipment. That's like the previous gen. Much of that can still be purchased and mailed to mainland China. But yeah, the EUV equipment a couple of years ago, the Dutch government kind of, kind of hobbled their ability and gotten together with the U S government to, to kind of limit mainland China's ability to make AI chips specifically, you know, I, right. Just to invoke the power of the word AI here. Yeah. That's, that's what this is ultimately about, but it's really unfortunate though. Cause like you said, Jason, what everyone should know about ASML is I mean, not to use any superlatives, like it's the most important company on the planet that you don't know about. But if you were putting together a list of like, you know, a small handful of the most important companies on the planet that you've never heard of. ASML is definitely on that list and close to the top of it, because if they also get taken out for whatever reason, if they went away, we're going back a few generations of iPhone. So what's the, so I only own two semiconductor stocks. I own ASML and I own NVIDIA and I bought them both 
a long time ago, well, relative to my investing history. And I've been thinking about ASML particularly ever since I first bought it a couple, you know, several years ago at this point. I can't find a bear case other than the world falls apart. So what am I missing? Like if you're interested in or you're investing in ASML, what's what is like the pre-mortem to them being a bad investment? Well, there is the geopolitical risk, which is which is to me highly distasteful. And and it took me a while to get around my distaste for that. I, I don't like politics of any kind interfering with my investments. Like if if I can like eliminate that from the equation, and you can't with this one, unfortunately. I think that's the bear case. We did discuss <laughs> this on a video, I think maybe last month, you know, what is the bear case? And and you know, there are some companies trying to develop some alternatives to extreme ultraviolet. It it's not going to be easy to come up with a solution that works as well as extreme ultraviolet lithography. But if someone does, if it's even somewhat remotely viable and can be done much more cheaply, again, one of these machines, 200, almost 200 million bucks a pop at this point, I think you could get some companies that maybe experiment. And one of them, maybe I would maybe just use this as an opportunity to dovetail this conversation into applied materials, Jeff, applied materials came out with a piece of equipment just within the last few months that they're going to start rolling out in the coming years that helps eliminate some of the double stepping method with the EUV equipment. So typically with some of the most advanced chips, you do two passes with the EUV light to kind of sculpt the the features onto the the wafer and applied materials, which is actually the largest chip fab equipment company by revenue, slightly bigger than ASML, came up with this piece of equipment that that can help cut those steps down and reduce the amount of times a fab would need to use the EUV equipment. I think it's actually complementary because these companies are actually an oligopoly I think this is another thing that's contrary to, to commonly held thought. ASML is not a monopoly per se. It has a monopoly on one very specific piece of equipment. It's a specialist. Applied Materials is a generalist and they work together. So like, I think maybe a lot of investors don't even know this, but let's say you are able to purchase an EUV lithography machine from ASML. You've got 200 million bucks laying around and you buy one and you're going to make chips for Apple because you're a brilliant marketer. Okay, well, next step, you need to go visit Applied Materials because they actually sell the reticles and the patterns for the EUV light as it passes through that patterning and gets shown onto the wafer. So it's actually kind of an oligopoly. You can't really just ignore everyone else and say like ASML is the most important company in the chip fab equipment space because the top five companies in this particular niche of the semiconductor industry are an oligopoly and they all work in tandem with each other. I think that's some, go, go ahead, Jeff. No, I was just, I was going to go in a slightly different direction, but it's one, it's something I've been wondering just as I've heard you kind of give us the quick one-on-one on the whole industry, Nick. And that is one of the things I've been wondering about as I've thought about this space, as it sort of have, has come into the popular, you know, investing culture over the last couple of years is 
does the fact that we're probably going to see more and more chips and more and more things as time goes on, does that make the industry less cyclical moving forward? Or at least does it reduce the impact of the, of the cycles? And then if not, or, or even if so, what parts of the industry, you know, these buckets we're putting this, these companies in, do you feel is is maybe a little bit more resistant to the cyclical cyclical nature of the industry, and maybe which ones are the most prone to the cyclicality of the industry? Hmm. I'm glad you asked that question, Jeff, because it gives me the opportunity to explain what I got wrong in 2021. At the time, during the chip shortage kind of, you know, in, in the wake of, of the lockdowns in 2020, of course, there was the chip shortage because some of these companies had shut down and then there was the huge surge in, in demand. There was a contingent, myself included, that thought at the very least going forward, the semiconductor industry would be less cyclical. And then, of course, that was very, very wrong because you get the bullwhip effect, right? With, mm -hmm. in, with supply chain disruptions, it's called the bullwhip, bullwhip effect where you have like this rolling, rolling effects from, from some sort of disruption further down the supply chain and it hit the semiconductor industry very, very hard. There was a flood of supply that came online the second half of 2022, just in time for consumer demand for consumer electronics to soften. So, you, you know, thesis that the chip industry would be less cyclical going forward busted. So will the cycle diminish over time? I would, I would like to think it could because this is an industry that is most definitely an oligopoly, but there's lots of industrial pockets of the economy that are kind of an oligopoly. And it's just kind of the nature of that business model is you, you just, you have business cycles, you have ups and downs. So I was wrong about that. If you're looking for a place within the industry that is less cyclical, or maybe not even cyclical at all, would be EDA, electronic design automation. Now, this is where the software industry kind of flows back into the chip industry to complete that virtuous cycle of, of you know, never-ending improvement and development. EDA is another little oligopoly, primarily three companies, Synopsys, Cadence Design, and mentor, which is now these are the exceptions that prove the rule about software, right? Because they have yes. some massive, massive structural advantages and competitive advantages against any other software company coming in and, and trying to take their lunch. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you might even be understating it. In fact, yeah. Yeah. Jason, because there's some hardware components in there too. Like they own some IP, they're kind right. of like an arm an ARM, they license license chip designs. They make basically CAD for chips. There's AI throughout this software, again, to, to use the, the catchphrase and get you guys clicks here. This is like ridiculously complicated software. No one is going to just decide, I want to make software that can design chips and just will it into existence. Not gonna happen. That is actually a very, very low or maybe no cycle part of the chip industry because they follow the general cadence of research and design in the chip industry, which goes And these companies are consistently deploying capital quarter over yeah. quarter over quarter into R&D. Even in a recession, 
I have you can't to. just stop R&D, otherwise you're Intel. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you don't want to be Intel. That is, Sorry, that is called foreshadowing, friends. We're gonna, <laughs> we'll talk about that one in a little bit. Nick, I, I, I want to talk a little bit more just about, again, we've got these kind of overarching, like the big, the big buckets, the foundries, the fabulous, and the picks and shovels. And of course, there's the vertically integrated, it's like Intel, right? That, that do a little bit of everything. Texas Instruments is vertically integrated, maybe the most vertically integrated. They're a specialist, but within their, within their cohort, they're soup to nuts, right? They sell directly to buyers. They, they, like they do it all, right? Manufacturing, R&D, the whole, the whole process. But what I would be interested to hear is which of those is your favorite? Kind of hinted, but I'm not, I'm not sure if you were clear. So you're thinking about, I want, I want two answers to this. Which is your favorite as somebody who studies it, that just thinks this is the most interesting to study, but also thinking about an investor deploying capital what is your what is your favorite within the the part of the market that's vertically integrated design, all of it all of those different buckets so what is what is the one that you think is the most interesting as somebody who follows it and what is the one you think is the most compelling as somebody that's looking to invest into it okay well that's a are, am i going to get a, a pick from you guys too if if i give my pick i, I want to hear jason and jeff it's only okay. fair it's totally fair. Even if it's a, even if it's a crap pick, I won't say it's a crap pick. <laughs> I'm willing to talk about like the, I actually do own a third. I just remembered. So I'll talk about either of the three that I own, but go ahead. You go first. Okay. Okay. So it, I would say it does change depending on what the valuation is of, of these stocks in any given month. If you asked me six months ago, NVIDIA was my favorite buy and probably AMD second. Fast forward to today, I, I'm gonna give you two, just because I wanna give you guys two picks because I, I wanna be known as a nice guy. I like Applied Materials and I like Qualcomm right now. Interesting, so Qualcomm is another fabulous. They're mostly, mostly known, mostly fabulous, and they're mostly known for, for stuff that goes in smartphones. That's like what they're mostly known for. Mostly, and for good reason. They're mostly fabulous and mostly known for smartphones. And it is an out of favor stock and for good reason. But they have some interesting stuff brewing that will take some time to come to fruition. But I think it's really exciting. And Applied Materials, which we already talked about. It's actually the largest chip fab equipment company by revenue, slightly bigger than ASML. And it has the broadest portfolio of equipment. And I think this is an amazing advantage that drew me to them actually quite a few years ago now, even in a downturn, they have this incredible ability to, to maintain a very high level of profitability because they have, Jason, you mentioned the services aspect of the of these businesses, software-based, high margin service revenue. And they're also able to pivot to other areas of the market where they see more demand in any given moment because of this breadth of their of their IP portfolio. So like this year, advanced chips kind of have been down and out up until Nvidia blew blew up, but EV EVs and the automotive industry still flying high. And so they kind of made this pivot and even in a down year for their for their industry they're still growing. And I, I love that. I love a company that has the ability to do that. 
Jeff, you go next. All right, I'll give you the super unsophisticated simpleton reason I own the three semiconductor stocks that I own. And then you guys can make fun of me. I, I, I love ASML for all the reasons we talked about. You know, maybe not a monopoly, but certainly, you know, the idea of owning the company that you literally can't do anything in the chip world without is appealing to me. I own NVIDIA. I have since I was a very new investor and I bought it because it was a recommendation in a Motley Fool service, if I'm being completely honest. But as I learned about it more, <clears throat> what I like about it is it it's diversified a bit in where it sells its chips. So to me, that gives it a little bit of resilience with cyclicality, like the auto industry might be doing really well, and then gaming might fall off, but gaming might pick off and data centers might. So I feel like they have a little bit of that going for them. And the third one that I forgot I owned is actually Texas Instruments. I was reminded when Jason brought it up. And my simple, very simple one sentence thesis for them is the world still needs dumb chips. And they 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 build a lot of the non-bleeding edge chips that you need in your microwave and your refrigerator and things like that. And that's as far as I've gotten. It, the industry is very confusing to me and hard to wrap my head around. I feel like those three companies make sense in my brain. So they're the, I'll give you, those are my three Again, simple, basic reasons for owning them, but those are mine. Bravo. I'm a, I'm, I like it. Go ahead. Go ahead, Nick. Say that again. I said bravo. I like it. I'm not going to make fun of Jeff. You can. That's really kind of our vibe, but it's, it's cool. All right, Jason, what are yours? They're a lot better than yours. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Every This is sort of related. Anytime I text Jason about anything I bought, his response is either, uh, or have fun being poor. So that's the kind of support I get from my my yeah. co-host here. And after after that, after I give Jeff a good chuckle, we engage in a useful, thorough debate. So yeah. <laughs> so so this. All right. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go further out on the risk. On the risk threshold here, and I'm gonna be curious to hear your response to this. Disclosure: Don't own it. Have never owned it. But thinking about thinking about buying a little bit of wolf speed. Oh, you maniac. <laughs> I think All right, I'll be the guy who asks, what the hell is wolf speed? <laughs> so they're Nick, I'm going to need your help really explaining it well, but they're they're try they're they've developed some advanced different materials that they're using to manufacture semiconductors with, right? It's God, what's it called? Silicon carbide. Silicon S carbide, right? So the idea is it can handle higher currents. It's more durable. Like, so you think about like industrial applications, like it has a lot of advantages versus like the traditional silicon stuff, but it's a lot more expensive, right? And that's the, that's the downside. And, and Nick, you and I've talked about it. Like when we, when we had our conversation about Texas instruments, I don't want to say I was dismissive when you and I were, I don't think it was on the recording, but like when we were just chatting beforehand or maybe after the fact, like there's, there's clearly when it comes to like these industrial applications, these are still commodity products, but they have to be good enough, right? But they have to be good enough at the right price, right? So there's a price threshold. And what I'm waiting to see with Wolf Speed is, is can they get to the price threshold where they can be disruptive? Or is it always going to be a premium for applications where you need something that is more durable and can handle the higher current and that kind of stuff? But the price is getting to a point where I think it's really compelling. The question is, can they get the economics right internally to actually 
do this profitably, right? What do you, what do you think? Challenge because yeah. they're building brand new fabs, and I think what a lot of early investors in WolfSpeed took for granted was that they were just going to be able to very quickly ramp up. Right. This is not CrowdStrike where you just call up AWS and fire up some new servers and, and serve your 50% customer growth. It's not how no. it works. No, actually I have, I have a theory about this that maybe get maybe I won't say, I won't go down that, that path. That's, that's way off in the weeds here. Yeah. No, you can't just decide, you know, Hey, I built a fab and now we're ready to go into full production. It can take years. You have to build the thing first, which is going to cost you billions of dollars. Again, back to, you know, the start of our conversation. And then once you spend the billions of dollars, then you have to spend billions more dollars ramping up to production and hope that customers buy along the way. And I think what really kind of hit a lot of investors right between the eyes in the last earnings call was management said the newest fab is going to be running at 20% capacity next at the end of next fiscal year. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, you don't make money doing that. No, no, to put it lightly, no, you do not make money operating at that low of capacity. They have a very long uphill battle and they need us chips act funding. Right. They need it. Right. And when you have they to tie your thesis to government funding, money. it's not, yeah, not a great thesis. So again, but that's, what's got me. That's why I've stayed on the outside looking in, but it's, it's starting to get to a point where the price is starting to get compelling because there is a market and I think it's, it's getting close. Here's my next one. And then we're going to pivot to something else. My, my most interesting one is Intel because it's been an absolute train wreck. And you were talking about being wrong about the cycles. And I wanted to say this too, Nick, you, like you said, there was a cohort. You were not alone being wrong about the cycle. So I want to make sure, you know, we're not going to bring out the torches and pitch, pitchforks just for, just for Nick, but I've been incredibly wrong about Intel as an investment. That's why I sold. I decided it's time to move my money to the sidelines at about a 50% loss. I still think Gelsinger is the right guy and they've got the right idea of what they're trying to do. But what we didn't realize how much Intel was living off of prior R&D investments until the weak results of their R&D spending over the prior decade have really come to roost and just the business is gutted. And it's, I think it's really interesting to follow it. And I think there's still going to be a turnaround, but man, I just don't know what it's going to take and what it's going to look like for investors to make any money. I don't either. Uh, it's really ugly. It keeps getting uglier. And what I fear now is you know, the turn, well, let's maybe talk briefly about a turnaround story uh, because this is, it's hard to do a pull around, a, a turnaround story of any kind, but especially in this industry, typically what tends to happen with these turnaround stories that actually work, like let's say AMD in the wake of, of the financial crisis of 0809 is not only do they kind of hit the reset button, like drastically, Again, AMD like spun off global foundries. There also simultaneously needs to be some sort of technology shift or one of these two things needs to happen, a technology shift, or you need to have a major competitor make a very serious misstep. And so I think if you want an actual full-blown recovery where, you know, 
since since I, your guys' episode on on Warren Buffett is is kind of in my in, in my mind here, where you talked about like cigar butt investing. If you want Intel to be more than a cigar butt stock, where you just get like a one time profit and then you sell it. If you want actual sustained long term growth, I think you need one of those two things for Intel. You need one of their competitors to make a serious misstep, or you need a technology shift. They're, we're getting the technology shift right now as we speak. I know AI is like way overhyped and it's silly how the market is overhyping it, but it is a technology shift and Intel is not at the table. The problem is in, Intel was the, the, the misstep for, for AMD's turnaround. Yep. So yeah, it's on the wrong side of that. All right. So we've gone 46 minutes and we've barely talked about NVIDIA, which tells you how bad we are at marketing our own podcast, because this is clearly the hot story right now. So I'd like to hear just your thoughts generally, Nick, on NVIDIA, either as a company, I know you said you liked it, but how crazy this run-up has been, even before the the recent earnings where we saw the huge, whatever it was, 26% pop. And my personal wondering about the company, and I want to know what you think about this, is it, this feels very similar to the the cryptocurrency-fueled bump they saw in 2020 and 2021, where the stock shot up and everyone got excited about it. Do you think this is a similar sort of bubble or is AI going to be a little bit more durable as a, you know, revenue driver moving forward? Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, I'm with you, Jeff. It feels bubbly to me. It does feel slightly like 2020, 2021. And actually, NVIDIA had a, a crypto bubble in, in 18 and 19 as well. Or right. I should say 17 and 18 when Bitcoin kind of went on a run back then too. So NVIDIA is not, is not bubbles happen. This is basically like the world's preeminent research and development organization. Jensen Wong, co-founder and CEO Jensen Wong, will say... I've heard him say it many times over the years that he's he's not really interested in doing anything that someone else already does. They 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 try to develop new stuff. They des they design chips for for new applications and then they go out and design the software to give their chips a use. Crypto the one thing that is unique about the crypto movement was crypto miners figured out how to use these very powerful video game chips for another purpose other than what they were designed for. The difference this time with this bubble is NVIDIA has been working on this AI stuff for a decade and a half. They designed it for this specific use case. And now we have the, you know, using software industry parlance, we have the killer app that validates the design. And the reason why because it's not just the it's not just the chips it's it's yeah. the entire ecosystem the software they've built all of the tools they've built right it's it's everything yeah that's what's so powerful about the company is and, and you know I, I'm sorry you guys are going to get naysayers that 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 leave nasty comments on your channel when I say this but Nvidia is a I'm not going to call it a monopoly the same as we can't call ASML a, a pure monopoly because there's competition but. NVIDIA is monopolistic, it's monopoly-like because no one has ever built something like this before where you have 
end-to-end -end -end full-stack computing solution where you not only design the chips, but you design the software libraries that, that lay on top of the chip. And then increasing, by an increasing amount here in the last couple of years, you also have a software as a service subscription model on top of that. So for a company that you know cannot afford to, or it just doesn't make economic sense to buy the chips themselves, and to you know use the hard the 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 software library on top of it, maybe you just want to rent the use of these things in the cloud. You can now do that too, and pay Nvidia a subscription fee for it. No one's done this before. So they're not a so monopoly. They're not a monopoly. Yeah, I was going to say the word unique, but they're they're approaching. They're a part of this, you know, industry in a unique way. Absolutely. And if you think about their list of competitors, yeah, they have competitors, but who else does GPUs like NVIDIA does? They, they here's, have. In, they in have a sentence, here's. In, in a single sentence, here's how I think about NVIDIA. And then we're going to move on. We're going to do a lightning round, wrap things up here. This is a company that I want to own in 10 years but I do not want to pay today's price to buy it. Agreed. <laughs> I like the price I paid a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Okay, Nick. Time for a lightning round. First thing, what stock do you hate that you love? Okay. I, are we all going? Are we all going to do this? No, Maybe. this is all you. This is where you're on the hot seat. Give, give me an example. Like, what? like a stock that you, you, you can't help that you love it, but there's something about it that you either know is a bad investment or but you just, but you're, so you like hate the fact that you love it. Like I, I'll give you not a, I can't think of a specific stock for me right now, but like for me, it's ones that like I fall in love with the story of what the company does. Maybe it's a good product, crappy investment, like that kind of a thing. And it doesn't have to be in the semiconductor in industry. It can be anywhere in the world of stocks. Okay. Uh, hmm. Okay. See, I, I was thinking when I looked at this question in, in the notes, I was going a different direction. So well, take we, it the direction you take it the direction you yeah, want. Go anywhere you want. These are we, you know, our questions aren't perfect. Yeah, they are. <laughs> well, our actually, our, our guests are here's, not perfect. Here's <laughs> Disney. There is no reason oh. this shouldn't be an amazing investment, but I hate, love this answer. I hate this as an investment. It is one of my oldest stocks in my portfolio, and I it's been on the chopping block now for six months. And honestly, I. I feel like at this point we can make the argument that this is one of the worst managed and over the last, you know, 
six months before the 20th century Fox acquisition through, through today. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a, it was a misstep. The pandemic happened to Disney. Yes, but it happened to everybody. So yeah, I looked at it. I looked at it recently and was shocked to see that it's losing to the market over almost any time frame. That blew my mind. Okay, should, next question it here. It should. I agree. I agree. With that intellectual property, it should not should not be the case. All right, what's in your toolbox to deal with the prolonged down cycles in the market? Do you want something like technical, or do you want to talk about mindset? I know you guys. I love your your mindset stuff. Mindset, no, I'm thinking yeah. mindset. Yeah, yeah, mindset for sure. I invest in businesses, not stocks. It took a long time for me to get my, you know, when I started investing, when I was younger, that was what drew me to stocks. When I like had the initial conversation with someone that knew about the stock market, I was like, whoa, I can own a piece of an actual business, but I don't have to work for them. I just get to participate in the upside. And then, you know, the financial crisis happened a few years later and, and I got sidetracked for a few years in the midst of that, but I'm back to that again. And, and like, that's, that's how I deal. I don't invest in stocks. I invest in businesses. Nick. And I think it's really that simple. If you, if you, if you really truly have that mindset, you, you begin to not care that much about the stock price. And now, you know, I just said Disney in the, in the previous response and, and <laughs> now, now I'm contradicting myself, but yeah, there we go. Humans are contradictory by nature, Nick. It's, it's okay. It's good. It's okay. I appreciate being wholly, wholly human. Nick, this was a lot of fun. Last question for you. Where do our listeners find you? So YouTube, Chipstock Investor, youtube.com slash at Chipstock investor, or I think maybe Google's algorithm has now picked up on the fact that we exist. I think if you just search for Chipstock investor, we might pop up on the front page, on the first page, maybe. There you go. There you go. What's your Twitter handle? At N Russellillo, R O S S O L I L L O. Friends, we're going to make this easy for you. We're going to put this stuff in the show notes. You don't have to write it down. So just look in the show notes. We'll have both of those things there. Again, Nick, thank you so much for coming on. Look forward to having you on again sometime soon. Thanks, guys. Okay, Jeff, we did it. We did it. Once again, we have used words to say things. As always, just a reminder, we love to share our answers to these hard questions, have people like Nick on to give their answers, but it is up to you to find your answers to life's hard investing questions. You can do it. I believe in you. All right. We'll see you next time, Jeff. See you next time.